All right, guys. Welcome to Brolosophy. Today, we are sponsored proudly by True Protein. True Protein are simply the best supplement company in the business. They support us. We support them. They're bloody unreal. They support some of the... Um, some of the most successful professional sporting clubs in Australia. If you go on their um, social media handles, you'll see that they've got many different fitness um, fitness industry professionals and and um, athletes that that are true protein athletes. They're just bloody great. They're they're a great company, great crew. We support them. We love them, um, and you should love them too. So you can. Get 10% off at True Protein if you go to trueprotein.com.au and use the code BRO. That's trueprotein.com.au. Use the code BRO and you will get uh, 10% off. Also, guys, we are brought to you by Yeti. So what is a Yeti? Yeti's a premium outdoor cooler brand that started making some serious noise in the Australian marketplace. So basically, guys, Yeti have been around for a long time and they dominate the United States um, cooler market and they've just landed in Australia and NZ. Yeti have created a new standard for coolers and their two hard cooler models, the Tundra and the Rhodey, were at the forefront of this mission. Um, we've used a Tundra at my co-working space for a very long time now. Anytime we have parties, all the beers and all the drinks go in the tundra and it's bloody unreal. They stay cold for longer and um, yeah, they're just the best. Born out of frustration with coolers that cracked, caved and gave up, Yeti set out to improve three main elements, durability, extended ice retention and weather resistance. So what's a Yeti worth? You basically get what you pay for, guys. A high quality cooler you'll never have to replace, superior insulation, a freezer quality gasket and supreme insulation power to join forces to deliver unmatched heat and ice retention. They're indestructible virtually. These coolers have been attacked by bears, chucked out of moving trucks, hit by semis, dropped out of planes, and they still and they're still game for more. Five year warranty on all coolers, proof that our products proof that their products live up to their customers' expectations. To learn more, jump on Yeti, jump online at Yeti. And go to yeti.com.au forward slash Athena and you'll never look back. I would love to see these coolers attacked by bears. That would be bloody hilarious. Um, you know, cooler one, bear zero. That would be sick. So um, anyway, I don't have any proof of the, uh, of the bear versus uh, Yeti cooler fight. But if I can find some, we'll, um, we'll throw it on our socials so you guys can check it out. Check out yeti.com.au forward slash bro. And you will not look back. Also, guys, we're brought to you by Athena today. So Athena is a company that I founded with uh, my friend Drew Slater and his lovely wife Madeline Slater. And we're an excellent company. Uh, <laughs> sounds a bit uh, sounds a bit biased, but I don't really care. So basically, what we do at Athena is we take really talented freelancers from all over the world. And we help align them with our clients to fit the needs of their business. So every business that, uh, that we partner with, they have a number of things that they want to get off their plate. So for example, if you are a small business and you're you know, chasing failed payments and, and, and doing all your account management, plugging in your low-grade social media stuff, doing all your own research, uh, data entry, blah, 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 blah. Not all tasks are equal inside of a business, guys. So in the example that I just used, there's all those tasks inside of that one particular business. 
there's also going to be a lot of high value tasks inside of that one business. And what we try and do is we try and make sure that we free the entrepreneur up the business owner to focus on the high value tasks, sales, marketing, retention based, you know, protocols, rather than focusing on data entry, account management, so on and so forth. We take extremely over talented, um, over uh, sorry, talented, overqualified people, and we plug them into our clients' businesses for a quarter of the price of what they would pay locally. So supporting small business, helping people get more time back in their life, scale their business and help more people in their uh, in their market. So if you want 20 hours free of our virtual assistant services, then you can get that at athena.co. So that's Athena with a Y. In the inquiry box, use the code BRO when you set up your demo and then you'll get 20 hours free. Anyway, here's the show. Now before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. And that's it. Yo. Some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, too rare to die. All right. Well, I'm not going to do a fancy intro. We are we are rolling, so we may as well get into it. Um, welcome back, guys, to Adventure Fit Radio. I have Alan Duffy with me here today. He's an astronomer, which he's just told me is also the same as an astrophysicist. So you know. Sounds cool if you say both, I guess. Matt, I'm going to introduce you. You can tell us all about yourself. Uh, firstly, uh, before we do, I noticed I was um, doing a little bit of research and, you know, I'd heard your accent before. I, I've seen you on TV and, and, and uh, heard you on radio and, and I saw you interview um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I was at mm-hmm. that show with Thinking. Oh, man, how good was that? Yeah, it was that great. That guy's incredible. It was, yep. it was great. And then so I was doing some research and I, and I saw, I, I, wiki, I think I Wikipedia'd you. The ultimate source of truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I saw... Is it true that you're an English-born, Irish-raised Australian? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess if you want to get the whole litany of, of nationalities. Yeah, um, so I was born uh, in uh, Peterborough, um, you know, 35-odd years ago mm-hmm. in England, and then pretty much immediately went to Northern Ireland, was raised, and then, you know, come 18, left like everyone else does in Ireland, mm-hmm. and yeah, just followed my way, eventually find myself in Australia, and... Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to become an Australian citizen after oh, wow. a, uh, I think the shortest possible time you could manage to do it, actually. I was pretty pretty focused. You on hold it. the record. I think it was, I, I could. <laughs> Congratulations. Well I think, anyway, like five years. So basically, you know, targeted E457 yeah. PR. You were and just then, on Tinder as soon as you got here. Got to find a wife, got to find yeah. a wife, got to find a wife. Well, actually, that was the thing. I mean, and I do have an Australian <laughs> wife, but I, I actually wanted to uh, become an Australian independent of my, you know, my wife's status mm-hmm. because... Um, and indeed, I was a, a sex citizen, Australian citizen, before I, I even proposed to her. But because it, I wanted Australia, um, I wanted to have that statement of, mm. we want you here yeah. as one of us. Yeah. And not because you were fortunate enough to marry <laughs> yeah. one of us. You but force you in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So You're like, I, yeah, well played, mate. We know we can't get rid of you now, but... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, no, and that was a... And that comes from a country where... 
Northern Ireland has, I don't know if you know any of the history, a little bit of a challenging uh, question about national identity, right? Mm -hmm. That is a source of conflict and division. Whereas for me, getting the chance to, to, in a positive sense, declare a nationality, to say, I want to be an Australian, mm -hmm. I want to contribute to this country, that was, a, that was an amazing moment for me. It was a very tearful, emotional experience where for the first time, the question of identity was was positive. Mm -hmm. There was no animosity. There wasn't a you know century well civil war basically for as long yeah. back as you can go. Um, so that was a that was a big moment for me, and it was a, a pride moment. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. Um, so uh, interestingly, on that, so Northern Ireland. So you're raised in Northern Ireland. So, so mm -hmm. are you you're talking about the fact that you know Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, UK. Ireland that's is right. Ireland. Is that, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So do a lot of Northern Irish sit on one side of the fence, really, we're our own nation, we're part of Ireland, and some sit on the side of the UK, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Like so it, it's not quite 50-50, but it's, it's probably getting close. So you have the um, those who would choose to remain with the United Kingdom, called mm -hmm. Unionists, mm -hmm. um, and their opposite counterparts would like to see United Ireland, the mm -hmm. Republicans. Um there's not a, you know, there's actually, I think, a growing number of people, perhaps now in the middle, who just think, well, actually, Northern Ireland has had a unique history, mm -hmm. uh, certainly, you know, since since its creation in the last century. So, is that um, can it go it alone? Can mm -hmm. it can it remain itself, mm -hmm. even if it were to become part of Ireland, for example? So, you know, uh, it, it's a fraught topic. There's there's no easy answer on this, uh, mm. and there's certainly been no easy uh, experience over the years. But one thing that's struck me most is uh it is a unique upbringing there is a unique sense of humor there's a very dark sense of humor <laughs> um you get to uh there's a there's a a film just come a film um a series on netflix right mm -hmm. just come out called uh dairy girls mm -hmm. which is all about it's kind of like the the in-betweeners right it's the growing up coming of age mm -hmm. school-based experience but set in Londonderry which is just genius so basically you have these girls trying to figure out their way through you know adolescence and you know the boys like me and meanwhile there's like bombs and riots going on and they don't care about any of that and that's and that's what's so incredible at Northern Ireland it was the the, the depth of civil war but that was just background and yeah. you're still just everyday experiences that's what you concentrate on yeah, that's what sure. obsessed you 100% yeah, it's um. I just finished reading um a diary of Anne Frank. Oh wow, yeah. And, and have you read that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very similar to what you're talking about there. It's like I was expecting all of her thoughts to be around what was going on yeah. outside of the walls, but it was all going on. It was all about you know what's going on inside of the walls and in her immediate you know her immediate it. relationship. So yeah, it is interesting. Um, yeah, cool. So how did you how did you get into becoming an astronomer? Um, how did that all how did that all happen? Yeah, right. So I was um, I was always fascinated by the night sky, and my, some of my earliest memories in Northern Ireland are looking out of the car window, driving in between uh, you know these these sort of country towns. And that's the thing about Northern Ireland is there's a lot of cars, a lot of farms, <laughs> mm -hmm. and not a lot of streetlights. So you get these beautiful views of of the stars. And I was always fascinated, wondering what they were. Um, you know, face pressed against the cold, cold glass of the car window, you know, to get a better view, and <laughs> yeah. um, and that was that was fascinating to me. But it wasn't really uh, that was just one part of the things I was curious about. I was very curious about, you know, 
the world around me, you mm-hmm. know, geology, all of these kind of amazing things. Um, and then I read uh, Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time mm-hmm. as a very precocious teenager. Maybe I think I was like 13 or something. Whoa. I tried to read it. That's a record as well. Oh, man, I did not <laughs> understand most of it. And in fact, I reread it recently on his passing. And I was like, man, I really did not get much of that yeah, at all. Yeah. Still don't get it. No, yeah, so that was enough for me to, um, to realize there were bigger and more fundamental questions out there. And... And that you could actually have a job in asking mm. those. That was something that just blew my mind. So mm. it really wasn't until going into university that, um, you know, I took, took physics at, at University of Manchester and there's, you know, Brian Cox floating around and that was pretty cool. And, and that was the beginning of my um, realization that, you know, I, I might be able to do this as a job. Mm. This is crazy. Mm. But I couldn't choose. Like I couldn't settle on any specific physics topic. So I picked... Um, cosmology which is literally the study of everything the study of the universe and um and slowly over time kicking and screaming i've been focusing ever more on uh, a specific question of dark matter this mm-hmm. invisible stuff makes up five times more of the universe than everything we can see put together mm-hmm. um we still don't know what it is uh i suspect we'll know in the coming five years really uh only because if we don't our detectors hit a fundamental barrier um, it's all or nothing. It's basically all <laughs> or nothing. And then we have to have an entirely new uh, technological oh, approach. Really? So which it's will like set you have back. to scrap everything. If, it doesn't, if, this, <clears throat> if this system doesn't work, mm-hmm. then you've exhausted this system of discovery and you have yep. to start again, basically. Is that yeah. what That's basically it. We're looking wow. at uh, what are called directional detection. So in other words, we are, um, there's, there's this constant hurricane of, of dark matter just streaming through us as we speak. Um, so this is the idea that uh, the galaxies are held together, gravitationally speaking, by this massive cloud of dark matter. It's, it's matter because it's got gravity. Mm-hmm. You can see, quite literally see the stars and gas of the galaxy pulled in strange and unexpected ways by this invisible gravitational partner. Mm-hmm. The stars are getting whipped around um, in ways that are just not explainable in any other sense. But it's dark because we can't see it. So there is this cloud of dark matter and... We know that our sun is going around the galaxy, mm-hmm. and this uh, gives a headwind effect where, familiar to anyone who's driven through the rain, as you're driving, the rain is falling vertically, mm-hmm. and yet, especially visible at night when you've got the car lights on, it's just at that last second, it looks like that falling rain just whips towards the window screen right mm-hmm. at a great speed. Now, of course, that's you going through it, mm-hmm. and in the same way, our sun is going through the dark matter cloud of our galaxy, mm-hmm. meaning this dark matter is whipping towards us the speed that our sun has traveled through it. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for this dark matter headwind. Now, if we don't find it in the next five, 10 years, and this is essentially the next generation of these, these detectors that wait, sitting underground, protected from you know, other things that can bash into them, like radiation from space, the, these detectors essentially wait to be struck by the dark matter. Now, if they don't see it, if these detectors if we have to continue to big build them bigger, more sensitive, wait mm-hmm. for this ghost-like dark matter to finally collide, sooner or later they get big enough that they actually see uh, the particles we've called, we call neutrinos coming from the sun. So this is a lot of physics. <laughs> but yeah. but basically... Um, Doing my PhD in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically we know... Um, if. If we don't see the dark matter in the next few years, if we have to build our detectors bigger again, because essentially this 
ghost-like dark matter it can travel through us, travel through solid walls, travels through the earth, or like collision. Hopefully, very occasionally, it will collide with, with an atom of our body, for example. You'll never have noticed that, mm -hmm. but you know, we make for very bad dark matter detectors <laughs> that we're building these better ones. Um, if we don't detect that, then the, the sun is producing these, these neutrinos, which are very similar sort of ghost-like particles. Um, we will be blinded by that. In other words, our detector will be so big, we'll be detecting the sun even when we're at the deepest cave imaginable, even protected from every other source of radiation from impact mm -hmm. to isolate our experiment. The sun will be blinding us mm -hmm. from underground, traveling through the entire Earth, its particles. So that's where we're sort of, this is our nightmare, that if we don't get the dark matter in the next five to ten years, this current generation of technologies, our detectors will be blinded mm. by neutrinos from the sun. Mm. So it's a tricky situation. We're sort of getting to the end of a, of a near 40, 50 year quest. And if we don't get it this time, we will have to basically develop a new technology path that can distinguish these neutrinos from the dark matter. And that will cost probably another five, 10 years. And at that point I'll be like, oh my God, maybe 50 or 60. <laughs> I'm moving on guys. Oh, oh, I'm out of here. I'm tapping out. So, <laughs> yeah, so right. uh, you know, for very personal reasons, I want this to be, I want this to be discovered and I want it to be discovered soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like you must feel the same way as um, the guys that like SETI, you know, they're just always cracking away, trying to, trying to find, <laughs> find, you know, intelligent life. Let me just ask one question because when, when you were talking there, because I, I pride myself on asking the questions that my listeners are thinking. Sure, right. Because yeah. our listeners are not astronomers. I'll be honest with yeah. you. That's, <laughs> so, that's cool. I probably went too deep too quick. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. it's all right. It's all good. So, but you talked about... Um, the dark matter head, the dark matter headwind that you can see when the Earth is basically pushing up against it, mm -hmm. not at the Earth, uh, the Sun is pushing yep. up against it, and you can see the pull of the dark matter, or or that the resistance, I should say. Mm -hmm. How can you see a, a resistant force pushing on the Sun mm -hmm. or the Sun pushing into it yeah. without detecting it fully? Like, how does that work? Yeah, right. So we have this so um, this invisible cloud of, of dark matter. These some kind of new particle, right? We, sh we just do not know what it is. But again, there's, there's absolutely staggering amounts of it that can hold the entire galaxy together. So as our sun is moving through this cloud, we will, um, uh, the, the entire solar system is going in the same direction, you know, the Earth as well as the sun, and we'll see um, a headwind effect. So at this stage, this isn't saying anything about what the, what the particle is, if it's bumping against us, we just know it's rushing through us, or rather we are rushing through it, mm -hmm. just like we're driving through the rain. So what we hope is that very occasionally the dark matter, uh, rather than flying between and indeed even within the atoms of your body, never colliding with uh, uh, the particle itself, the, the, the center of, of the atom we call the nucleus, that's a tiny target, that mm -hmm. is, we think solid matter is solid, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm touching a table. I can mm -hmm. feel the, the chair uh, pushing back on, on my legs as I sit in it, right? I'm not falling through it. But that's, that sensation of a solid table or a solid chair is no physical contact between yeah. Particles. The solar particles. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. actually the the repulsion. It's funny, isn't it? It feels solid, right? <laughs> you can tap it, right? Yeah. But but we know that it's actually um, the cloud of electrons around the atoms in the table are repelling mm. the electrons in my in the atoms in my finger to give that sensation of of 
being solid that I can't push through. Now, if you don't care about electrons, electric fields, if, if you're this dark matter that just doesn't see any of that, then actually solid matter presents a very small target. It is anything but solid. It fly, there are gaps in solid matter, if you don't care about these electrons, are mm -hmm. essentially everything. Mm -hmm. the, the nucleus is a very small target, which is why I can have 100 million particles a second go through just my eye from this dark matter. Mm -hmm. And I will never see any of that collide. I will mm -hmm. quite literally never um, hit one of the atoms and reveal itself. So we have to wait because sooner or later a particle will collide with the nucleus. At that point, it sends the nucleus, the center of our atom, reeling away. And that will give a, a little flash of light. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly will if, if it hits one of our, our detectors. So what we're looking for is this very occasional collision as a ghost-like dark matter particle slams straight into the center of, of the nucleus of an atom. And that's, that's an insanely small chance of happening. Mm -hmm. You can wait for days, weeks, years at this point for that to happen. So the moment it does, that's, that will open the floodgates. I mean, that will be mm -hmm. the Nobel Prizes will be handed out at that point. It's like the gravitational waves, basically, yep. that, 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 that was just waiting for that one stretching of the, um, forgive me if I'm wrong, stretching yep. of the space. Yeah. Uh, the stretching of space, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that, yeah. and that was, but, 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 but just a tiny. I mean, my yeah. God, I think, but you know, we think we have a hard time in dark matter studies. Gravitational wave. I mean, the stretching was was equivalent to a ten thousandth the size of the of the nucleus. This tiny thing I'm yeah. talking about, and it's ten thousand times insane. smaller than that. That's hard to actually comprehend. As well, the way you comprehend it is, which is no easier to be honest. But it's the distance. It's a hair width change in the distance between our sun to the nearest star <laughs> that, and we saw that hair width oh geez how good science so far good. out so good. what is going on that is insane um crazy so um funny funny story actually i have a friend who's got a um a silicon valley um autonomous car startup it's called oh, nice. zooks yep um and they're in the race against um apple and tesla and so forth and he's just really good at like schmoozing with people and he's his laboratory, or like his testing grounds, is on the same laboratory as Caltech yep. in um, in wherever in Silicon Valley. And he took us for a tour there once, and he actually convinced one of the security guards to give him a, um, upgrade his um, upgrade his card, his security card, so that he could get into the room of the um, original particle smashing machine. Oh right, nice. Yeah, yeah. so I've been That's there. That's radioactive. Yeah, he's he's like. <laughs> <laughs> he probably shouldn't have been in there. Yeah, it's probably why it's he, locked. He was, yeah. like, he was like, I shouldn't be taking you guys in here, but I uh, spoke to the security guard and got the access and he took us yeah, in this cool. room with this, the world's first, maybe it wasn't the world's first then because it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't um, radioactive, you know, tape, do not enter kind of yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. around it. But um, yeah, he took us in there and he goes, have a look at this, this is the world's first particle smasher. He knows probably about as much about science as I do, which is bugger all. Right, so right. maybe it was just... Um, it was just some other some other machine, but uh, it was pretty cool. I, I thought, wow, what am I doing in, in here looking at this? But anyway, um, look. So uh, we've talked about dark matter. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Alan. So so that's obviously, especially for you, because it's your field of research. Mm -hmm. One of the most pressing questions in in all of space. What are the other things at the moment that fire you up? Are other things that you would say are like the big important questions mm. that, I mean, aliens is one. Um, mm -hmm. I love asking um, astronomers or astrophysicists what, what put the, um, the ingredients of the Big Bang in the pinhead. 
you mm. know, what happened before the Big Bang. Yep. Um, but what fires you up about, you know, the bigger questions in space and science? All right. <clears throat> so uh, quite a few. I mean, aliens definitely won. Um, Probability? Yeah, look, it's, it's a case of... Uh, and I'm sure your listeners will be aware of the Drake equation, but essentially this is a way to break down our ignorance of the ultimate answer of how many communicating civilizations are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you basically can figure out, well, you know, how many stars are there? How many stars that look like our sun? How many sun-like stars have a planet like Earth? How many of those have conditions for life? And you basically, at that point, you've gotten to a number which... In, in just the last couple of years, thanks to, to Kepler, the satellite, and, and other um, observatories have now spotted these, these, some of these planets, but we realize that there are 4 billion Earth-like worlds, Earth 2.0s, mm-hmm. in our galaxy alone. Mm-hmm. So then you ask, well, what's the chances that we are the only potentially habitable one of those four billion that is inhabited. Mm-hmm. And that's a hell of a, that's, those are crazy odds to bet against, right? Mm, 100%. <laughs> that's like going against Winx or something, yeah. right? Like, it's going to lose the next race. Pro- prohibitively short odds there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, that's, I haven't uh, a good enough handle on biochemistry to see is this, is this a reasonable supposition that we are the only place is this that chance alignment of complex molecules that began to replicate themselves is that just so insanely unlikely that in four billion worlds over the course of billions of years mm. and countless interactions on those plants in these primordial soups that ours was the only one because when that happens when you first get the replicating molecules then evolution will take over. They'll, they'll begin to, the molecules will combine, they'll add together to form, essentially they'll use up all the available molecules to make reproduce themselves. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a slight difference where one molecule now, uh, this is the mutation is slightly changed and I can break the other molecules and it will start to outgrow them. In other words, you begin to get an arms race between mm-hmm. these molecules and very quickly those molecules begin to demonstrate quite clever techniques to compete one another and the arms race escalates and before you know it evolution is in full swing i don't get why you would stop at any point it doesn't seem obvious to me short of some massive environmental issue you know asteroid strikes or Mm. you know the planet explodes or the sun explodes um, why that would stop so i don't have a good answer as to why we don't see any aliens but the key is we haven't seen any aliens. Yeah. So one of the questions uh, phrased by by Enrique Fermi uh, uh, back in the 30s, a great great. In fact, I think he may have used your your um, the Atom Smasher in Caltech at one point. Uh, but where where are they? Mm. Right. And the Fermi paradox. The Fermi paradox. And there are many t- attempts to answer this. Nick Bostrom, famous uh, Oxford philosopher, described the the <coughs> great filter, and that we would hope to see. Essentially, there's two points. Well, at, there's at least two points one could imagine this this roadblock kicks in. Either it's at the very beginning of this story that it is just impossibly difficult to find molecules that replicate themselves mm-hmm. and allow evolution to take over, or it's at the point just before you begin to communicate as a civilization or begin to colonize other stars that something kicks in. Yeah, because if 
If you don't stop a civilization from spreading, then even conservatively by some of his estimates, it takes about 20 million years, max, I think he worked out 100 million years, to colonize all the stars. Unless mm -hmm. there's some, and it doesn't take much for a species to colonize. We haven't yet gained the ability to travel between the stars, mm -hmm. but a billionaire is doing exactly that breakthrough yeah. star shop, mm -hmm. uh, Yuri Milner, and that's going to be a, an extremely interesting um, effort to see if we can do that in the next 20 years as he plans just to send a tiny postage stamp sized satellite uh, spacecraft but ultimately were we to continue our technological progress sp spread to the asteroids begin to access that level of resourcing then it begins to become imaginable you might be able to, to move between the stars and, and once you start to spread essentially there's nothing it becomes very unlikely you'll ever get stopped, right? Mm. If you're in one planet, one asteroid strike can take you out. If you mm -hmm. spread throughout the solar system, now you're talking, you know, something of the order of a gamma rape or some mm. insane high energy event to wipe you all out. You continue, once you're into multiple <coughs> stars, it becomes very difficult to stop you. There have been, if there are millions of potential alien civilizations in the past, it becomes very hard to imagine what stopped all of them, right? Yeah. And that's that's the Nick Bostrom sort of argument of the great filter. It would only take one of them to spread to the stars yeah, that's for them right. to be everywhere. Yeah, it's like a snowball snowball effect once they once they mm -hmm. start that they should continue to, to yeah, go. Yeah, exponential growth. But let's look at like here's my here's my theory around that. Let's look at from the dawn of time on on Earth and how many different species of animals have come and gone in that time and how many sure. are, how many are left now. And then there's us and for the so for four billion years or whatever that our planets existed, mm -hmm. as w as far as we understand, probably from 1960 mm -hmm. to now, you know, there's been a species on this planet that's had the want, mm -hmm. you know, or the know-how to you know try and expand onto other planets and stars and, and and think about it and realistically have the science to do it. And let's say, for example, in a hundred years' time. I don't know what I think about global warming, but there's a lot of things that mm -hmm. could wipe us out, you sure, know, that we're sure. that we're letting 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 go. So so we might have of the you know, one zillion different species that have lived on this planet mm -hmm. over four billion years, there's been one species mm -hmm. for one hundred and fifty years. So that's that, you know, hair yeah. to the to the next solar system of, of of probability that one of ours and we've had life for you know, mm -hmm. however long, three billion years, or whenever, whenever life was probably yeah, but three and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so like it, the the Fermi paradox and um, sorry, the Drake equation. You know, trying to figure out okay, this is how many solar systems, this is how many habitable planets, all that. That all works out cool. And then you know, as I actually interviewed a guy from SETI, um, the main guy. Uh, I forget his name right now, top of my head. But but they're um, they're Frank Drake. No, 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 not not Frank Drake. Um, oh, it's said he um i've forgotten it right now uh it was about two years ago but but <laughs> made an impact <laughs> <laughs> it's actually great fun but um i'm in the throes of, of trying to explain the universe here so yeah we'll keep <laughs> on task. Keep working task, overboard. Yeah. but but so we're we're looking at you know we're looking for radio waves mm -hmm. and we're looking for a hair you know every planet that may have you know have habitable life yeah yeah you know, we're, we're looking for that needle in a haystack across all fronts. So even, I, I get it. And, you know, are, are we alone? There's a lot of reasons to say that why haven't, you know, why hasn't one, you know, one 
life force gone and colonize all of space and so forth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like if you look at us, it's so infinite. We're the only data that we have on, sure. on life, you know? So if you look at us, it's so infinitesimally small that some life form on Earth will actually ever make it to other galaxies and solar systems before we ruin the planet. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you might hope that another alien civilization would be a little less, you know, suicidal. Seth Shostak. Yeah, oh, right, <laughs> Seth. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah cool, sorry. Cool. Yeah, I love Seth. And I was yeah, like, oh, he's man, good. Well, I can't yeah, remember yeah. his name. Um, so, I guess what you're hoping for in the argument of um, Nix would be that, you know, other civilizations are not so crazily suicidally hell-bent on destroying mm. themselves and their yeah. own ecology and <laughs> yeah. planet. So We're unique, aren't we? Um, you know, we seem to be remarkably self-destructive in that regard or short-sighted. Is that going to be, is that every possible intelligence you could imagine that could arise in these billions of years? Because our galaxy is much, much older than our solar system. Our solar system has relatively come lately. Mm-hmm. So is that to say that we would be the, you know, the... the um, prime example that every intelligent civilization is inherently self-destructive. Yeah, uh, it, that's that's a possible great filter. It's hard to imagine that every civilization would fall over it by this point. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's so unlikely that you get to be a technological civilization. Maybe it's opposable thumbs. Maybe that's the key evolutionary yeah. trait. I doubt mm-hmm. it, but maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's very rare. And hence, hence, we are the only ones that got to this point, And then we're going to fall over. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I, I find it fascinating. The, the discussion with SETI about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, we're trying to search with radio waves. We use um, uh, the Parkes Radio Telescope as part of Breakthrough Listen. We are, um, in fact, most radio telescopes have a capability to tag the unexpected, the unknown. We uh, at, at Swinburne, in fact, have, um, have a few of the Breakthrough team there doing this, actively mm-hmm. searching. We're searching in optical. We're searching in um, beginning to explore, well, what are the other possible means of communication? Because mm-hmm. you're trying to second guess the aliens in that mm-hmm. sense. And maybe we'll never hear anything. Maybe we'll never find anything. If you don't look, you'll definitely not find. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's a bad... Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing the search. What I find most enjoyable about the search, however, is that it asks... It... it and actually guides our own questions about ourselves. Mm-hmm. We begin to imagine, you know, is this short sighted what we're doing to the planet? You begin to think on longer term mm-hmm. uh, timescales. You begin to imagine what are the range of possible actions because we seem to be taking one, but maybe aliens are taking others. And it, you just, as with most science, it's really a question about us. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence really turning the, the focus back on ourselves and we begin to imagine how would we communicate. And that itself can be quite a telling um, experience because I think we are communicating in the sense of we're just leaking radiation, radio bubbles, mm-hmm. um, out into the cosmos of our radio signals, of, of our televisions and, and the like. Santa Tesla floating through the ether. If, yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> so look, it, that's going to be so confusing <laughs> to anyone who picks that one up. Um, but look, that's, I mean, that's cool stuff. Um, but, I, but what I love about it most is the fact that we are daring to not just think, but to actively search mm. uh, for what would arguably be the greatest scientific or philosophical discovery imaginable. 100%. It's, it's just mind-blowing stuff, and we are living that right now. And if that isn't making someone get a, a, a thrill or a shudder, just even goosebumps, goosebumps you yeah. know, then you're not imagining the consequences. Enough. Yeah. Just to, to pick up an alien signal, 
it is worth the pittance that we spend on it. Um, I would love to do it more. And I mean, effectively, it's Yuri Milner bankrolling it in this generation's approach with breakthrough, you know, Russian billionaire. Um, it's, I just think of, of the ways it would change us as a society. Now, sometimes I'm cynical and think, well, it probably wouldn't at all, actually. We would be stunned, but by the next week, we'd be back to the news cycle, right? Yeah, we'd be back to the Kardashians. Yeah, that's totally, totally right. It's, and, and that's because humans, our greatest strength and arguably our greatest weakness is our ability to normalize the abnormal, mm -hmm. the, the extremes. We can live in the most extreme of times. And well, we, we have artificial intelligence in our iPhones to a degree. Sure. Not, a, not artificial intelligence, but we have magic. We have oh, magic. it's incredible stuff, right? F 50 years ago, that's magic over there. And yeah, we're just yeah. like, oh no, that's just Siri. Now she's just telling me the weather in you know, Calcutta right now. What's, what's weird about that? Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. I have an artificial intelligence system. It's, that's just, and, it, and actually we hammer them, right? Like we talk about how bad Alexa <laughs> yeah. is or whatever. And yeah. it's like, sorry, you're criticizing this computer <laughs> that's telling you your calendar for the day yeah. and how to get to that place yeah. the fastest. So yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty good at normalizing the extremes. And, um, you know, that's, that's one way that we manage to live in these extraordinary times. It does present, I think, a challenge for longevity, however. We don't seem to think about existential risk. We don't realize true risks mm -hmm. and that's not just climate change we're talking soil degradation we're talking the acidification mm -hmm. of the oceans the mm -hmm. destruction of marine as well as um uh, land ecosystems yeah we don't see the macro do we we're so we focused don't. on that making our life in the micro all good mm -hmm. that we will sacrifice the macro of everybody's life at the same time yeah look yeah. and and at the same time you know we do also need to look after ourselves and and um i just think we don't do a very good job of looking after either the planet yeah. or ourselves. Yeah. Typically, we're so focused on here and now that we, and, and being in the moment that, and ironically, not actually living in the moment truly, but always uh, in a sort of meditative sense, but we actually find ourselves so distracted by gadgets or, or um, you know, just Facebook's mm. news feeds that mm. we don't actually begin to think of, you know, how can we live um, a healthier, better life? How can we have a healthier, better society, healthier, mm -hmm. better planet? We don't really ask those big questions. And I, you know, I was taking the, the train, the tram in today and I, you know, I was looking around and, you know, usually I'd be on my phone and I'd be uh, reading something I would hope that was you know reasonably educational yeah. right Buzz sometimes food. yeah Buzz <laughs> food, right? sometimes you just do a top 10 just because you're bored but yeah, yeah. some kind of listicle but I was looking around and everyone's on their devices and I was kind of trying to be a bit um, nosy and see what they're all doing you know and the vast majority of the time it's it's social media mm. it's not I don't think that that's as enriching an experience. I don't think that's the most enriching experience that person could be having at yeah. that moment. And yet it's, that was the experience. Degradating of the mind. Yep. So that, that worries me that I don't think we're equipping ourselves for uh, the long term. And I don't think we're equipping ourselves to think and dare to ask the questions that we need to be asking to mm. survive in this next century, let alone to colonize the galaxy. Yeah. You know, maybe social media is the filter. I don't think, uh, I, I think that's a uniquely human fixation, however. I suspect that most intelligences don't go this way. I think it's the worst thing to happen to, I think, that Steve Jobs, when the iPhone and uh, 
and the smartphone came out, we were like, oh my God, look at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I block myself from my phone from 7.30 p.m. till 7.30 a.m. I can get into calls, bank, Uber, yep. like a few things like that. And then all the other apps, I'm blocked and my housemate has the code to get into them. Oh, so I, it's a nice. real pain in the ass sometimes because there's always something that I actually need right here, right now yeah, at yeah, 7.45 yeah. that I'm yeah, like, yeah. oh. But I'm, a, I'm so heavily addicted to it and, and other people's lives and junk news and junk yeah, whatever. Yeah. That I, it's the only measure I could take. I tried everything to put my phone to grayscale, deleted all the apps, or all, 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 um, locked myself out with the code. So I had to, uh, 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 had to break through that wall of you know, yeah, annoyance. Yeah, yeah. None of it worked. So now yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm locked out and I, I can't get back in from 7:30 p.m. to 7:30 a.m. because I, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not good for us. Um, and we could talk about social media forever, but I want to ask you something about um, something that, that came up in that last that last thing that you were talking about which was um the importance of like if we were to discover the greatest discovery that would ever mm. ever ever come to fruition which is you know probably alien life at this point um so <clears throat> i have a theory that at the moment the way that the world works is the world is filled with us and them mm. you know and we have a number of different things that create that mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. religion is one of them nationalism is, is mm-hmm. another you know, sexual preference, blah, blah, whatever, you know, all, all this stuff that we go, hey, I'm me, they suck, they're over there, that's them. Yeah, right. You know, and I feel like the greatest thing that could happen to us as a, as a species that could actually, you know, pull us together would be one, an asteroid rocketing towards yeah, us right, and right, Bruce right, Willis yeah. and the Armageddon team getting out there yep. and bust, you know, a worldwide effort like that. Okay, yep. facing our own mutual destruction outside of our own destruction, mm-hmm. doing it ourselves, to ourselves. And then secondly would be that would really bring us together. And secondly, and, and more powerfully probably would be alien life, but probably intelligent life. You yeah, know, right. I, I suppose if we find microbes on, on Mars, I don't think that's going to do anything. But if we found intelligent life and we could prove it, you know, finally we're us and they're them. Yeah. And I feel like apart from the fact that scientifically it would be the greatest, you know, discovery of all time for a multitude of reasons, so, like societally, I feel like it would have the biggest impact that anything could ever have mm-hmm. in the history of, of mankind, really. Yeah, look, I th- I, I'm sort of optimistic and I hope that that would be the case. I think we, um, we would certainly have a, a real sense of us and them and humanity works in a tribal <coughs> nature. I mean, that is deep in our core. Um, and, you know, if our tribe were to encompass the entire planet, I have to think that's a great thing. Mm. That's that's could be the best thing that could happen. So you know that that certainly is a, is an optimistic view of it. Um, we could end up finding ourselves instead uh, looking to the the outsider to these these aliens and um, essentially normalizing that away. And then within you know next week we sort of go back to our divisions mm. because we don't you know there's a sort of we. I'm trying to think how real this is, but you get, you know, like the London Blitz, right? And there was a great sense. People speak of the the coming together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was facing an external enemy and maybe that was was the case, but pretty quickly it all went back to normal after, right? So, you know, we have to go beyond having an external threat to make us Mm. uh, love one another or to feel at least less animosity to one another yeah that's right Um, actually that's a good point so look but humans being what they are i suspect that that will be our shortcut in our tribal psyche for you know maybe the next century maybe we do get better though maybe Mm. maybe artificial intelligence ends up showing us the other and we realize what it is about ourselves that we have in 
commonality as a, as a, as a species and humanity in creating the alien, and mm -hmm. I suspect we'll create an alien intelligence before mm -hmm. we ever find one. Mm -hmm. So I think artificial intelligence will be that. Um, that will be enough for us to say, okay, well, I have more in common with my, my sisters and brothers um, because I've now seen what the other is, truly what the other is. Mm. But, you know, humans are pretty good at, at finding division or creating division um, because that's just how we're hardwired. Mm. Yeah, comp competitive because we needed to compete to survive, I guess. Um, it gets back to the molecules. It's, it's, it's all the way back to those initial molecules, right? The sense of replication of, of you know, prioritizing your genes or your inherent structure, that is the fundamental. And our intelligence allows us to ask, to think beyond that, to ask bigger questions, mm -hmm. demand more of ourselves and our biology would allow. But that's not something that um, comes for free. Uh, we have to struggle. We have to strive for that. And very few of us ever achieve, I think, true enlightenment in that regard. I certainly haven't. I certainly mm -hmm. don't. Uh, you know, I grew up in a country where it was very much the other. And I can assure you that you still had fights with your schoolmates, even though you were one side of a fence versus the other side, right? So, yeah. Um, you don't... Postcode wars. Yes, you don't get... Po <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you don't have a, um, a free pass on um, building a happy world by having an external threat or, or, or this alien. Like, we will still have to solve all of our same challenges and problems. Maybe they become slightly easier because we can see that there's this other. But, you know, I suspect that it doesn't, um, it doesn't change that fundamental issue that we've been having for millennia essentially this is as old as humans have been able to think has been this challenge of resolving the other and we haven't done it yet i don't know how much technology helps us in that mm. if anything arguably our technology has atomized us to a greater degree we all have our own individual news feeds we don't even share the same world anymore we have mm. our own facts so that that worries me a lot um that's an interesting point so maybe we can't rely on that maybe we have to get back a bit more to basics but um I did realize, actually, I, I sort of, I, I spoke about the alien thing as, as being one of the big questions. It's actually not the biggest question. For me personally, there, the two bigger questions, saying so I don't matter for now, is the um, nature of consciousness, because that is oh. just fundamentally, <laughs> blows my mind. I don't know enough about <laughs> it to speak <laughs> about it, but it, killed, it just, wow. Um, and the other is, is what came before the Big Bang. Now, yeah. is that even a physical question can if, if time arose in the event of the big bang then there really isn't a question to say what came before mm -hmm. it's like what's north of the north pole right mm. you just mm. you've reached the point mm -hmm. so that to me is is a truly stunning question the fact that we can even measure the age of our universe um 13.6 billion years with an error bar that's better than i can measure i can estimate your age mm. that is how, how is that not something we have tattooed or something? You know, yeah, that's that should right. be a constant reminder yeah, of how audacious yeah. we are as a species. We should be walking down the street going, <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's very impressive. I think, um, I think the problem with what's before the Big Bang is there's because the power of our human brains combined and all the greats before us and, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants scientifically and all that stuff, there's obviously a process that, well, I believe, there's obviously a process that our brains cannot fathom mm. because at the moment i mean this is probably obviously probably been discussed in your 
in your areas and, mm. and people that you know that you kick around with. But if you think of time as a linear thing, and here's where it started at the Big Bang. Well, what was before that? Yep. Okay, so you can just keep doing that forever. That's mm-hmm. an unanswerable question because you go, oh, well, what happened with the pinhead is there's a process that, that went on for blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And what started that process? Yep. You know, yep. you, get, you get caught in that, in that swings and roundabouts. And, but the thing is, there must be a process that our brains cannot fathom. So I don't know if it's what happened before the Big Bang because mm-hmm. maybe time started at the Big Bang, like you say, but it might be, what process do we live under? What, mm-hmm. How does this work? Mm-hmm. Is time a, a cyclical thing and mm-hmm. where we're getting back to the start of the Big Bang? Yep. And we, we don't understand how that, would, how that would work, but there's obviously something that we don't grasp right now, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I feel like it's not a when does it start thing, it's how does it work thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, well, we would hope that a fundamental description of, of nature, and this is... T- described as a theory of everything, which eluded Einstein, um, that that would have the answer, right? Mm. So that's the process we live under. We, you know, each stage of scientific discovery has allowed us a greater insight into the universe and has allowed us to ask deeper questions and mm-hmm. even more challenging questions, right? Before we realized that general relativity was the correct answer, we could talk about an eternal universe, which avoided then the challenge of, well, what came before this? It was always been like this. Mm-hmm. We know from general relativity that there's no, it's not possible to have an eternal universe, or at least not one that remains visibly the same. It changes. Stars inexorably pull one another together. We now have dark energy, which is apparently inflating the universe apart. Um, it's going to look different 10 billion years from now than it did today, and certainly 10 billion years ago. So we can see that there's a change. Well, you know, it's obviously human instinct. We, we did it as, you know, two-year-old, three-year-olds with a why, why, why. And we asked that question then, you know, of, of, well, what did it look like at the start? And we can get to, you know, depending on your, on your flavor of physics, you know, we have a, an image, quite literally an image of, of the universe as it was 380,000 years after the Big Bang. That's the cosmic microwave background. For maybe the older listeners when they had their old analog TVs and the aerial was there and you would lose the channel and it would all be a static hiss. About, you know, one in a hundred pixels on your screen was you picking up that afterglow of the Big Bang. So you were you were performing cosmologies, you're trying to tune in to, I'm guessing like, hey, hey, it's Saturday or something in those mm-hmm. days. So that was, yeah, that's not bad. And then we can go to nucleosynthesis. So the formation of the elements themselves um, about three minutes after the Big Bang, when the universe was so hot and dense as to be the similar conditions to the center of our sun, right, mm-hmm. where new elements are forged. And we look around and we see the abundances match what we would predict. So we can sort of, we can see, in you know, air quotes, what the universe was like. It was like the center of the sun. And then maybe you push the, the, the start time back to the energies that we explore at the Large Hadron Collider, the Atom Smasher in CERN, in Geneva. And that's now getting us to, you know, a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. To go much earlier than that takes even higher, you know, you're talking about a universe of such extraordinary densities, temperatures, energies, that we can't recreate that Mm. on Earth. Now, we have a theory called inflation that, you know, I don't, particularly want to get into, but, but there's a sense of how the universe could have arisen as we see it today. 
And that's now going to the Planck time, that's 10 to the minus 35 seconds. I mean, that is just an extraordinarily small um, window of time. There is an imprint potentially detectable from that on the universe, and we can call that uh, primordial gravitational waves. About five years ago, we thought we de detected them, and, and we have not. <laughs> we realized it was essentially dirt on the camera lens. It was, it, it was dust in the Milky Way, but it was effectively, uh, effectively on the camera was lens. Was Ralph here last night? Ralph said he cleaned last <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that, that was a bit embarrassing. So yeah. that was, you know, but then it doesn't answer the question, because of course you could always say, well, what came before that, right? Mm. And at some level, Planck time is the, that's where that question breaks down. The, mm -hmm. the, if you get to that point, you're, you know, you're with your two-year-old, three-year-old kid, then, you know, one, they're a genius because they've got <laughs> to that point, yeah. but you have to stop. There's just a, a, a fundamental point of it, of it breaking down. And even the theory of everything that alluded Einstein, that quant, the, we talk about the quantization or the quantum meets um, uh, GR, so, so quantized gravity, the description of the small meets the description of the very large in general relativity, that would end. That would have to have as its most smallest uh, quantized step would be the Planck because to go smaller than that has no meaning. That's what we suspect, but you know, will we even ever reach that? Who knows? Mm. And it doesn't really, it's not clear that would still answer this question of, of our origin, which is what mm. drives, I think, a lot of science or a lot of scientists is the same thing that I think drives a lot of us and, and certainly would drive those amongst us with you know, a sense of spirituality of you know, what is my place here? How, what was my origin? What should I be doing or where should I go? I yeah, mean, the meaning of life, yeah. The meaning of life, that's right. So we have those kind of basic questions and science can answer a number of them. Um, again, it comes back to consciousness of, of trying to answer the others to give, essentially consciousness gives meaning to the physics that we see around us. Mm. And that's a really extraordinary idea. And it wasn't, it's still not clear to me that we even need consciousness in this universe. I, can't, I still can't quite believe it's, mm. like the more you think of it, the weirder it seems. <laughs> but um, but that, that aside, we do have a sense that our technological process is accelerating, that this new era of uh, machine learning, so, so AI-driven research, is really just beginning. But that could could have extraordinary consequences, extraordinary insights. And maybe it does take a certain different type of intelligence to be able to answer some of the things that we don't mm. yet know. We don't even, we haven't quite been able to pose the question mm. uh, appropriately. But those are, those are sort of in, in the future. I, I like to think of what we can do in our everyday lives as, uh, as people and, and um, flex that questioning muscle and that's something I, I try to encourage my students certainly to do but uh, in my general public talks as well it's try to be a bit more observant try to ask questions of the world around you you know we're looking at glasses of water at the moment we can see reflections we can actually see there's some shadowing right it's a transparent glass how is there a shadow being cast mm. Just look at a clear glass of water. How is there a shadow being class, <laughs> cast? Yeah. Right? So it's because there's a certain bending of the light, focusing of the light, like you have glasses mm -hmm. um, on, your, on your eyes to do. And that means if some light is being focused, well, there's art and some areas becoming brighter. Well, obviously, some areas will have to become dimmer, right? Mm. Because the light's being focused. So right there, you've got, you've got the diffraction theory of light. You know, you're, you're actually seeing light as a wave. Um, and there are other experiments you can do that, that will show it's a particle, right? So you can do these mind-bending things. In other words, in your daily life, you can begin to observe and ask the questions, and it becomes a bit of a thrill. 
and this podcast is part of that experience of asking those kind of questions and daring to find answers maybe you just talk to someone who knows the answers maybe you go on a deep dive through wikipedia to get the answers yourself for me the more important thing is that you're trying to get answers that you're mm. posing good questions that you're trying to get answers um yeah you could you, you can sort of practice that with and we sort of talked about this in um in the scientific context as citizen science where we're where scientists are trying to actually tackle problems that are just too big for any one research team to undertake um you know, I just uh, launched with my colleagues across in, in um, Poland the, the Credo app, which has actually turned your smartphone into a cosmic ray detector. These are the, the, you know, feeding black holes, exploding stars, kick out these particles, they crash into Earth. Unimaginable energies. And they, um, they're actually the things that we, we blind our dark matter detectors, actually. So we, part of the reason we go a kilometer underground like we're doing in a gold mine in Stoll, Victoria, um, is to shield us from those cos cosmic rays. Well, they're fascinating objects in their own right. Mm. We want to build detectors that cover the world to track the very highest energy events. One very sensitive detector is a smartphone, mm. and they are everywhere. So you install the Credo app, you block your camera lens, and essentially it's just constantly taking pictures because occasionally a, a cosmic ray will slam through the detector and trigger it. You'll actually see a streak of light on your camera we collect that, that then automatically get transmitted back to, to HQ. And if a number of people have the app and see the similar time, that kind of, of cosmic ray, we know we've seen a truly gigantic cosmic ray shower hitting the Earth at that point. You can begin to explore the very highest energy scales, unimaginably greater than anything we could build on Earth, uh, just using your smartphones in this, in this manner. I mean, those are the kind of... That to me is the unique and ever optimistic positive side of our technological progress. The fact that you know the same devices that we can you know poison our minds, uh, limit our minds with with social media and other other um, sort of distraction tools can also enable us to become scientists and and to probe questions that quite frankly are beyond imagining. I mean, just yeah. how you, to create an a particle of such energies. I mean, I worked out recently. Basically, the, the, some of these cosmic rays are are to a normal particle interaction what you know a nuclear bomb is to you throwing a baseball. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these things are insane energies. How can you create them? We we actually can't figure out at this stage how to create some of the, the higher energy ones. But you can be part of that journey, and that's just one of those citizen science projects that use your smartphone, that use your eye as well. Right? We talk about. The Zooniverse, um, this is a website where we post astronomical images that our machine learning algorithms, our AI can't classify, can't figure out what's going on in there. The human eye is still better than any machine at pattern recognition, especially when it's an unusual, like the unexpected. That's what humans are great at mm -hmm. spotting. That's what you get to be part of in this new paradigm of citizen scientists. And what I hope is that the more you do of that, the more you want others to, to join you in that search. And we actually get a, a feedback loop of interested, scientifically minded people finding others, beginning to join that, that search, to begin to ask those deeper questions rather than just scrolling or, or you know double tapping a like or a heart. They begin to think I could spend my time more profitably and I could begin to search for the deepest questions imaginable that to me is the paradox of our time the same 
tram ride, train ride in that lets you scroll your, your feed, mm -hmm. you could be trying to classify unique and never before seen galaxies. <laughs> You can scroll the universe. <laughs> you can scroll the. You could swipe left or right. And, you know, that to me is uh, the weirdest paradox of our time, and why I still want to have optimism and hope moving forward. Because I think, and I want to believe that we're going to get to a stage as a society that we recognise the that a lot of the distractions have their place. Mm -hmm. That it's fine to be distracted, but not all the time. Yeah that you want to exercise your mind and that you want to have that thrill of discovery when you learn a new fact, when you see a new thing, that once you start to get that, it becomes habit forming just as the social media channels are, are inherently habit forming. We can hopefully have a journey of discovery that is too. Absolutely. Alan, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to have to get you back in. I want to talk about, I could really content, continue that conversation right there. I want to talk to you about why science is important. It's one of my questions, Danny. One of my bigger <laughs> questions. We didn't even get anywhere near it. I want to talk to you about consciousness. I want to talk to you about AI. They're the next three things we're going All to right. talk about. And next time we're going to get two and a half hours blocked. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, mate, in, in, uh, in a couple of minutes, because we've got to get you out of here, um, quickly give us a wrap of where people can find you, um, plug anything that you need. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so the Credo app, C-R-E-D-O. It's on Android at the moment. We're trying to get uh, it ported to Apple. So that's the search for Cosmic Rays. You can find me on the socials after everything I've just said. <laughs> I, I genuinely only post what I hope are interesting things. I, I try not to share anything that's not, but uh, Astro Duff on, on Twitter. and um, Or just head to the website, alanrduffy.com. And Beautiful. you will find me and all my latest activities there. Beautiful. Mate, thanks for coming. Thanks that for was trying, awesome. Mate. Cool. That's a wrap. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for uh, listening. If you enjoyed the show, please support us by um, telling a friend, subscribing, giving us a review. You know, you guys know the protocol. You've probably listened to a lot of podcasts and um, there's always ways that you can help. Yeah, and, and one thing that you can always do is you can just tell a friend. If you really enjoyed a conversation that we've had, um, then, you know, go out and let somebody know. So uh, we're all about telling interesting and important stories and hopefully you guys get some value out of it. So um, but before I go, make sure that you don't forget to support our sponsors. Our sponsors are trueprotein.com.au that's trueprotein you can go to trueprotein.com.au and use the code bro and you'll get 10% off we're also brought to you by Yeti premium cooler brand the best in the business you can head to yeti.com.au forward slash bro for all of their range and then check out 20 hours free um, when you go to athena.co and book a demo to check out our virtual assistant outsourcing services. So that's it for me. See you next week.